0: This is Surviving Ministry, conversations designed to help you last longer and grow stronger in ministry.
1: I'm your host, Seth Stevens. There's a billion Muslims in the world and they need to hear the gospel and it's very difficult to share the gospel with them so we have to, we need to try to do that. You make yourself vulnerable and dependent on the people that you're trying to reach and that builds a bond. Because an assumed gospel is oftentimes a forgotten gospel somewhere down the line. And eventually that church is going to go off the rails. That's really kind of the secret sauce is reading the Bible with someone else. Today, I'm
0: gonna be talking with Brian P. who is a church planter on the Arabian Peninsula. I'm going to be talking with him about his conversion in a parachurch ministry and his subsequent work with parachurch ministries. We'll be talking about how working with international students helped prepare him for ministry. We'll be talking about how the Lord developed an interest in the Muslim world for him, as well as church planting principles, and then personal burnout and sustainability in ministry. Hang on, because here we go. Today, I am here with Brian P. He is working in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and uh, he's going to be talking a little bit about his uh, experience in ministry, life in ministry. Before we uh, get to where you are now, let's start out in uh, kind of the origins of your Christian faith. How did you come to know the
1: Lord? Mm, Thanks, Seth. It's great to be here. I became a Christian growing up here in Memphis, Tennessee. Actually, mm. I, I grew up as a member of Christ United Methodist Church, uh, but it was actually through Young Life's ministry when I was in high school. I went to White Station High School and uh, heard the gospel in very simple form. I knew a fair bit of the Bible, a good bit, but uh, understood through the preaching of the gospel there in Young Life that. I needed to have a personal relationship with Christ. I needed to confess my sin to him. I needed to repent and trust in him for, for the forgiveness that he would offer freely to me. So I became a Christian there, went off to university. Now, how did it, it, what, Growing up in the church, you probably wouldn't have
0: thought you were lost before that point. No, what, no. Was there anything that kind of made it click
2: for you hearing it, or, or was it just the right thing at the
1: right time? I think that I thought that I was a Christian because I went to church and because honestly I had I thought that I was a good kid. Yeah. I thought it I thought that God was pretty lucky to have me on his team. <laughs> and um and I you know I like I think like a lot of people who are nominal Christians or Christians in name only I compared myself with other people. That's kind of how I assessed mm-hmm. Whether or not I was a sinner or not, yeah, I just kind of looked around and tried to find the people who were worse off than me. I thought, yeah, and uh, and so it wasn't until I was confronted with the idea that no, I had sin, and that my sin was actually far worse than I thought it Mm. was, and I shouldn't be comparing myself to other people. I should be comparing myself to the God who is holy, and pure, and sinless, and entirely good. Yeah, I think that the more we understand the character and nature
0: of God, that convicts me more of sin than anything else. Oh, just yeah. just knowing His purity makes my own defilement just seems all the more wretched. Um, so, kind of from that point, w- w- what was your course in life? Did you, you know, have an idea or inkling you would end up in ministry, or did the Lord
1: uh, kind of bring you there through a winding path? It's a little bit of a winding path. I think fits and starts, and I, I didn't really think of ministry. I did think, oh, if I when I go off to university, which was soon after I'd become a Christian, mm-hmm. I I want to be a young life leader. Yeah. So I I got up to Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, plugged into the training course for young life volunteers. Mm-hmm. And but there was my roommate was an old friend from middle school, and he was not interested in Christian fellowship. And in the yeah. end, that kind of swayed me, and I basically just dropped out of it. Hmm. So I considered myself a Christian. I think I was a Christian, but I didn't have enough spiritual wherewithal to plug into a local church, to find Christian fellowship on the campus, and stick with it. Yeah. So I just thought, you know, it'll just be me and Jesus this year.
0: Yeah, very
1: dangerous place to be. Very <laughs> dangerous place to be. And honestly, it, it was a great year scholastically, Yeah, but it was a terrible year spiritually. Mm. And I just it was just a, a constant spiral downward for me. Mm. And then at the end of my freshman year... What were you studying? Mechanical engineering. Okay, I know nothing about that. Yeah, mechanical engineering. <laughs> and at the end of my freshman year, I got invited to... Uh, an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Bible study, Mm. and it blew me away. I opened the, I mean, I think I'd opened the Bible for the first time in months and months, Mm. and I, you know, I read the scriptures, and I heard God speak to me through, not laudably, but speaking to me through his word, and it was like, you know, a tall, cold glass of water on an extremely hot day. It was like, oh, I need this. I this mm. is what I've been missing. What have I been doing? I've been a fool. Mm. So I vowed that I would come back in the in the in the fall and get involved in Christian fellowship. Yeah. And so I did. Was that through intervarsity or through intervarsity? Yeah, I came back and uh, connected with that intervarsity chapter on on the campus. The InterVarsity staff worker at the time, a man named Max Stiles, began to disciple me. Mm. I pretty quickly jumped into leadership, and I just ate it up. I, I went to every camp, every conference I could go to. Were you involved in a local church at the same time? I did. I, I, And I think that was largely because the members of that chapter were committed to being a part of a local church. Yeah, It was more intuitive. I don't know that there was teaching about that, but I followed yeah. them. And so I was, uh, I became a, yeah, a committed member of a church there near yeah. campus in Knoxville.
0: One of the things I hear from people that are involved in kind of, uh, inter, you know, uh, collegiate ministries and things like that, and parachurch ministries related to that, sometimes like those parachurch things either become a substitute for a church or that they're doing so much, and then the local church seems to be investing in the person so little that uh, sometimes people almost have like a a cynicism or a kind of the church isn't doing what it's really supposed to be doing attitude, uh, you know, due to the parachurch investing so much. Was that kind of your experience or is it d- different
1: where you were? Or? You know, there wasn't explicit teaching about the primacy of the local church. Mm-hmm. And yet the staff and more mature students in that InterVarsity chapter were committed to local church. Yeah. So again, it kind of happened more intuitively, more just based on... Um, what the people around yeah, you do. Yeah, imitating their lives. I do think you're exactly right. And I think many parachurch ministries do not teach the people in their ministry about the primacy of the local church, yeah. that the local church should be first and foremost, and that is God's chosen means for the evangelization and the discipleship of his people, yeah. the evangelization of the world and discipleship of his people. So praise God for the parachurch. Yeah, amen. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think that is lacking in many uh, of the parachurch ministries. Yeah. Um, so you got got involved in university.
0: at that point, kind of what was next for you ministry-wise? or?
1: Well, I, I got involved and I, I, I loved doing ministry on campus. I was eventually the chapter president on mm-hmm. campus. I was really began to get involved in reaching out to international students on campus. Yeah. So I went to, I remember going to, Urbana 1984, which is mm-hmm. uh, the InterVarsity's Missions Conference. And it was there, really, that I began to understand, okay, God is doing something bigger in the world and causing the gospel to go out. And if I'm a Christian, I need to somehow be a part of that. Yeah. And maybe it means going. It certainly means praying and giving. And so that certainly that seed was planted there. And you could say kind of I, I put the blank check I signed the blank check yeah. and put it on the table, so to speak, for, for God. I didn't have a place to go. No one was saying, hey, why don't you go here? Mm-hmm. Why don't you set your sights on being a full-time missionary? That really wasn't there, but I think there was this, the beginnings of an openness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, I'll go if the Lord calls me and makes it clear.
0: Yeah. So uh, through Urbana, you, ha- you got this kind of vision and passion for uh, reaching the world and having, you know, Christ's gospel proclaimed worldwide. Um, how did that seed grow throughout the years then?
1: Well, I, soon after that, I I went on uh, a couple of short-term mission trips, uh, one in the summer of 86 and then another in the summer of 87. One, the first one was to Turkey. The second one was to Kenya. And one of my particular interests were, um, Evangelizing Muslims—it was hmm. sharing the gospel with Muslim people. So I was fascinated by Islam. I took a one—I used one of my electives uh, to take a class on modern Middle Eastern history. Oh wow! Um, and uh, befriended many different kinds of international students on campus. But I was particularly interested in Muslim students. I remember me- meeting these two young men from Iraq who had just come out of the Iran-Iraq war, the first one, oh, wow. and they were ardent Muslims. And so we had lots of great <laughs> conversations about, yeah. well, tell me about Islam, help me understand this, let me tell you yeah. about Christianity. And they're very open usually to,
0: to talking about those things. They're, they're all, They seem to be more open to talking about religion than most Americans are.
1: Oh, they are. They are because, you know, religion is an accepted and uh, accepted part of your life. It's, it's woven into the culture and Mm -hmm. everyone's a religion. The idea that someone would be non-religious is really not kind of understood. Yeah.
2: Um, what, what was it, if if you remember, can describe it? Uh, uh,
0: bless you. Um, what was it that originally got you interested in uh working with Muslims? What kind of initially
2: attracted you to that crowd? I mean I guess it <coughs> excuse me need to get you some water <coughs> and coffee went down the wrong way oh um <coughs>
1: I think it was the common Abrahamic heritage. Sounds like I'm crying. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> but I'll just say it's when really emotional.
1: You, I know when you have <clears throat> liquid go down your windpipe. Um, yeah, I think it was <clears throat> the common Abrahamic heritage mm. that was of particular interest to me. And so <clears throat> also, of course, uh, the... Um, the location that Islam sprang forth from, which of course is tied to Abraham and the fact that all those lands over there are lands that are mentioned in the Bible. Mm -hmm. So that was fascinating to me and certainly fascinating to me as well because I think it was at that point in time, maybe a decade earlier, when the idea of the 1040 window was kind of maybe becoming more popularized, more yeah. more broadly taught <clears throat> in evangelical circles. And so I heard this clarion call that there are, you know, this many, there's a billion Muslims in the world yeah. and they need to hear the gospel. And it's very difficult to share the gospel with them. So we have to, we need to try to do that. So kind of the history,
0: history and the difficulty kind of attracted you. Yeah, to really did, bit. really did. Okay. Um, so you, you started getting involved with those through, uh, uh,
1: started getting an interest
0: in that through the short-term trips. what do you do on the short-term trips?
1: Well, the, yeah, the interesting thing was when we went to Turkey, we actually, we lived in Turkish neighborhoods yeah. and we went out every day on the street and we were, we had a, a memorized speech mm. that basically said, I'm, my name is Brian Parks. I'm from the United States of America, I'm trying to learn Turkish. Would you be able to help me? Mm -hmm. And we were supposed to say that to, I think, 40 people. And through that, wait and see what kind of friends you made. And really, I would say that after one week of doing that, I had plenty of contacts, people in the neighborhood who were (coughs) – intrigued that this American wanted to learn Turkish. Yeah. And so, yeah, had lots of people to go meet with then day in and day out and pursue friendship with.
0: Yeah. I feel like
1: hospitality is such a big thing in the Middle East, I think.
0: And part of the... If somebody came knocking on our doors here and saying that,
1: you'd think, what are you... Part of the strategy was, uh, I think the original missionaries that developed it were called the Brewsters, and it was basically Mm. titled Language Learning is Mission. Mm. So it was... You you make yourself vulnerable and dependent on the people that you're yeah. trying to reach, and that builds a bond. Rather than coming in with a savior complex, <clears throat> yeah, that's right. Type of a thing, that's right. Then in, in Kenya, uh, we um, it was different different kind of project there. And for three weeks, I lived with a Kenyan family up mm-hmm. near the Ugandan border, and I was the chauffeur for. Um, an African inland church bishop <laughs> bishop Silas Yego I remember his name actually and he had a back problem and I was his I'd lived with his family and I was the only American in the house and didn't see any others for 3 weeks basically and drove him around in his Toyota So were you truck. the only
0: one going on this
1: trip No there were probably 25 students but we were all spread out across uh, the country gotcha. And, uh, but I just happened to be assigned to him, and I was partnered with a Kenyan student. So we had a intervarsity has a sister movement in Kenya, mm-hmm. and a couple of their students were participating in the program with us. So, yeah, that was amazing experience. And then, the- did you learn anything from the mm-hmm. bishop, or was the was did he speak English at all? Yeah, he spoke English. Okay. Um, we went to lots of church services. I certainly learned I mean my my world view was really changing and beginning to understand much more about the variety of styles of church in the world and how many you know, hours were the services? Oh, yeah, hours and hours. <laughs> and I sat up front you know, as an honored guest facing everyone. So, so it's, it's not, we've got to end it at, at 12 so we can beat the Baptist to Denny's. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And then the second part of the trip, I was placed with a missionary couple. So you, mm-hmm. you spent, you lived with a Kenyan family first, and then you lived with a missionary family last. It was a two-month mm-hmm. program. And in that portion of the trip, I was placed with a missionary family up near the Somali border. Mm. And it was kind of a tense place militarily and yeah. politically. There were lots of S- uh, Somali refugees around, so there was lots of Islam there. Yeah. And I remember I had to go and register at the police station. Actually, I drove into t- I got on a bus early morning in the dark in Nairobi and got off the bus at midnight in the dark in Wajir was the city, or the little town that we went to up on the Somali border. Most of the trip we had had, Kenyan military sitting up front with machine guns yeah. uh, guarding us and just exhausting trip. So it was dark. So we didn't go to the, we didn't go to the police station that night. We went straight to the missionary's compound. Mm-hmm. I went to sleep immediately. And then sometime in the middle of the night, the police came and woke me up. I remember flashlights shining in my face and people speaking Swahili. I didn't speak Swahili. And, you know, I just remember saying in Swahili, that's all I knew how to say was I don't speak Swahili. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they had seen the Mazungu, the white guy, drive into town, and they wanted to know why I hadn't come and registered at the police station uh-huh. immediately. Anyway, this is a great experience. Yeah. So they're just trying to monitor all foreign influence <clears throat> in the city since that's it's right. so close to a hostile that's border? That's right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No so, photography, nothing like that. Could you could couldn't uh, do that in, in the city.
0: Yeah, that's a that's an eye opening experience to
1: say the least.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think inter you know international travel and experiences, like sometimes you just look back and like I had no idea what was going on. How did I get through that? Like,
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, that's right.
0: And it it's, and sometimes looking back on that's encouraging because you're like, okay, you can survive these. Uh, type of experiences and yeah. things like that. Um, so, you know, f- you f- fast forwarding a little bit, uh, how'd you kind of get I- interested in and, uh, have doors open, uh, to your current area of ministry and just
1: tell people a little bit about what that is? Well, the ministry on campus was so rich when I was a student mm-hmm. and I caught a vision for that. I loved doing it. I loved discipling other people. I loved sharing the gospel. And my staff worker said toward the end of my days as a student, he said, I, I want you to come work for me. Mm. I want you to work with me on campus and let's do ministry together. I, I thought it would be better if I go work for a little while to kind of test yeah. that calling. And so I said, but, but I-, I arranged with him, I said, let... I'm going to try to set my budget at a level that would make it easy for me to step out of engineering because engineers make a lot of money. A little different pay scale than ministry. A little, little different pay scale than <laughs> ministry. And, and, uh, but I, I, So I got a job as an engineer in South Carolina, lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and I kept in touch with that man. We were close friends. He had discipled me, obviously, and um within we plugged into a local church Mm -hmm. got involved there so you're married you switched to we (laughs) yes we i that's right my uh the woman i married was a woman i'd actually met in high school at white station oh wow and she went to university of tennessee and we dated all through Mm, university days and she was on that trip to kenya too Mm. so we got married after we both graduated Moved to South Carolina, got involved in a local church there, mm-hmm. helped to plant a church actually oh, right. during the three and a half years there uh a group that had come out of uh the church that we had uh become members in and those were good years but and and I enjoyed engineering, but I really wanted to be back on campus mm-hmm. and so that was that was kind of the test i I was longing for it, still wanting it.
0: Do you think that helps you relate to people like what do you think the advantages of having that time uh, I won't <laughs> I, was, I was trying to do a loaded question. What do you think the advantages of the uh, time in engineering was? Do you think that has uh, just helped you in any ways relationally or otherwise? I think as somebody I'm, in ministry
1: I think I matured a lot during yeah. those years. I think I just became more mature and mm-hmm. I think that it was also helpful to step away from you know, the immediate influence of that man who had discipled me all four years mm-hmm. of university. Uh, not, not because his influence was bad, it was just helpful to have other people speaking into my life. So, maturity, a breadth of Christian experience, I think all of that contributed to also kind of just understanding what it's like for someone in the workplace, a Christian who's got uh, an engineering job or a doctor's job yep. or a secretary's job or. Just to understand what what's it like what's it like to follow Jesus and not be in full time ministry.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and then you think about
0: in, in ministry what am I asking of those people? Is it reasonable? Is it unreasonable? What are they struggling with? What are they going through?
1: Yeah, I think y-
0: you've got a perspective on that that
1: somebody who's only being in ministry uh, may not have. And knowing how to disciple students, then I think eventually mm-hmm. was you know here's here's what's going to here's what's coming for you. Yeah you know, not communal living on the campus anymore. You're going you're gonna to have a job. It's going to be busy. You thought it was hard to have to guard time for your quiet time while you were a yeah. student. Listen, it's harder. It's harder out there. It's easiest now. So better now to establish those disciplines in your life. Those kinds of things were really helpful perspective. And then you felt the, the, the draw back into campus work. I did, yeah. And we, we had our first child. My wife was a critical care nurse. Mm. We had our first child, and we moved to Lexington, Kentucky, and we decided that we wanted her to not be working. And so we took a combined 70% pay cut.
0: Yeah, I was going to say mechanical engineering, intensive care nursing, and then going into campus ministry. Yeah, yeah.
1: I took a big pay, we took a big pay cut cumulatively. Yeah, and right after you have a kid. Oh, gosh. But, you know, I I don't remember, it was scary, but, and I think my my parents really thought I was foolish, (laughs) but we knew the Lord was going to take care of us, and he did. Honestly, Mm -hmm. he did. I mean, we were on food stamps and uh, women and infants, children, but... No hardship per se. We yeah. were we were happy, and the and the ministry was exciting that we jumped into there in mm-hmm. Kentucky. Yeah. So we worked. I worked in Kentucky for twelve years as a campus staff worker. Uh, first, kind of on one campus, University of Kentucky, and mm-hmm. then uh, and carried over that interest in reaching international students. So yeah. formed an international student chapter on the campus mm-hmm. where international students, uh, in particular, were gathering together for Christian fellowship, sharing the gospel with their friends. And eventually was a team leader of over some younger staff. And then eventually was the state director for InterVarsity in Kentucky.
2: Yeah.
1: And a staff team of about 12.
0: Okay. And so, you know, thinking back now, just that continued interest in, international students and your kind of participation, interaction with them. uh, In what ways did that prepare
2: you for what was to come? Oh, I think it was crucial. It was critical. Mm -hmm. And just understanding
1: what it's like to be in a culture that's not your own culture uh, and the struggles that they might be going through, just because I tasted it a little bit, yeah, uh, going overseas to Turkey or to Kenya. You know what it feels like to be the odd man out. I know what it feels like to be the odd man out. And so that gave me a lot of compassion for mm-hmm. uh, international students here in America. Yeah, so I think that was really, really important in preparation for what God was going to be leading us into. In addition to that, I think just basic ministry skills. Yeah. So not even particularly with uh, internationals, but just learning how to share the gospel, learning how to walk beside new Christians and help them grow. Mm-hmm. And I will say as well, we we were trying during those years, this was this was the 90s in Kentucky, we were trying to more integrate our Campus ministry and and uh, integrate our chapters so that they were multi ethnic. So mm-hmm. trying to reach out to and befriend African American students um, as well. And I will say that that kind of in many ways helped prepare me for the ministry that we would do in the Middle East eventually as well. Well, uh, um, I'm kind of curious about that. What were
0: you know cuz you know in in some cases i could see there might be more hostility or bad blood trying to make a move like that uh, just with you know we're we're from memphis the city where martin luther king jr was shot you know there's right. uh you know in this city there's tons of racial problems socioeconomic problems all all you know all sorts of bad blood and things like that so what did working towards like what were some of the challenges? What were some of the opportunities? What were some of the breakthroughs you found, uh, as y'all tried to do that, you know, in the, in the nineties, which, you know, I think things have even changed a lot now since then, but in that time in that setting,
1: uh, what did you find? I think the idea of trying to understand life from another person's perspective, Mm -hmm. what is their life experience like? And, knowing that I, okay, I don't maybe know what their life is like, Mm. uh, and what kinds of things they experience. I think beginning, beginning to
2: understand, um,
1: I think, I I guess beginning to understand, uh, white privilege, what I would call Mm -hmm. maybe white privilege that I experienced. Um, just from befriending and working with other staff who were African-American, hearing about their experiences in life, gave us a perspective that eventually when we would begin working with different nationalities in the Middle East, I think I was ready to see and able more, more able to see that their life experience might be uh, encompass some of the very same things that minorities here mm-hmm. in America would experience. And listen, racism and prejudice are the, all over the world. They're everywhere in the world. We don't have the corner in the market on that. We do not have the corner on the market. It's sin. Yeah. And there's sinners everywhere in the world. And so it's there. And boy, it, it's there in ample supply, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, especially. In the place where we live in in the United Arab Emirates, because there's so many different nationalities, lots of hierarchy, lots of prejudice, Mm -hmm. so that really helped um, prepare for the ministry that we've been doing over the last 17 years in Dubai. Um, how how did you end up in Dubai? We interVarsity is a part of an international student movement that Mm -hmm. has. Movements in about 160 different countries, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. And around the year 2000, 2001, uh, the international director approached my supervisor, the man who had discipled me and who I had been working with all those years in Kentucky as well, and asked him if he would go to the Arabian Peninsula and pioneer university student ministry. And they said, this is the final frontier of the 15 countries that we have not pioneered in the world. Mm. More than half of them are on the Arabian Peninsula or mm. in the surrounding area. Yeah. And he came to me and said, hey, do you want to go pioneer student ministry on the Arabian Peninsula? And I thought, man, that sounds like a blast. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's not exactly the response that my wife gave me. Yeah, I was going to say, you've, you've got a
0: family and how many kids at that four point? Four children, four blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls. <laughs> not people that can blend in as easily over there. That's right.
1: Yeah, so that really began about a year-long decision-making process.
0: Mm-hmm. That, As you're going through that, let me just ask, you know, how do you make the, like, what are the parameters that you're using to come to that decision? How do you decide whether or not this is something God wants you to do, whether or not this is what's right for you in ministry, whether or not this is what's right for your family? Um, What's the process of discernment with that for you?
1: Well, of course, we're praying. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you're praying about a big decision like that, oftentimes you're you, you inadvertently just pray about that decision. Lord, I, I need <laughs> yeah. an answer to this specific question. And yet, I, as I look back on it, really that year of trying to discern how we should answer that question, I think the Lord was teaching us to be open to other correction in our life. Mm. You know, I think the Lord oftentimes... Um, says, before I'm going to answer this question that you want me to answer, we need to deal with these particular areas in your life. Mm. And that's kind of what happened for my wife and I. Um, there were some areas of sin, I think some, some ways that our marriage functioned or not, didn't function like it should yeah. uh, biblically that the Lord wanted to put his finger on and began to bring up. As we oh, wow. sorted through that, that decision, it was difficult. And as we prayed and kind of listened to the Lord and, and received some of the conviction of sin that he was bringing to us that surprised us, eventually my wife came to me and said, because I see you responding to the Lord in obedience to these areas of conviction, I think the Lord is telling me that I need to trust you with the decision. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) Oh, and man, I I, I didn't want it to be that way. Mm -hmm. I wanted a 50-50 buy-in. You know, I, yeah, 100% buy-in from, yeah, two people. Yeah, 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 100% buy-in, you know, 100% buy-in. I want, because I wanted, I wanted, hey, if it didn't go well, I want someone to share the blame. Yeah. But she was saying, listen, I, I'm, I'm trusting the Lord by trusting you to make yeah. this decision. I think the Lord's going to work through you making the decision. I mean, that was a huge step on her part. That was very humbling. And I doubled
0: doubled down on prayer. I doubled down
1: on (laughs) prayer. I doubled down on prayer and, and yeah, then eventually came to the conclusion, I think we should go. And Mm -hmm. some of the, you know, some of the, some of the questions you ask or maybe midstream in the decision, she would say, why us? Why should we go? And eventually I kind of was asking the question, why shouldn't we go? Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't we go? And, I remember one funny evening, we, she said, let's ask the girls what they think. So we sat our, all our girls down. You know, they were all under <laughs> the age of 10. Yeah. And, um, let's ask the real wise people. Yes, yes, I know. I, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we said, oh, here's the opportunity in front of us. What do you think? And they were like, oh, that sounds thrilling. That sounds exciting. Let's go. <laughs> uh, which is not the answer my wife wanted yeah. to hear at the time. And I didn't ideas. take that as a word from the Lord necessarily. Yeah although it was comforting, yeah. and in the end, we decided to go. I decided that we would go yeah. because I thought, I think the Lord has prepared us for this, and with all the student ministry experience we have and the team that we were going with. So that was the other thing, I think. We were going to go with a team of these other two families and their kids, and these were people that we had been in the trenches, the ministry trenches with mm-hmm. there in Kentucky. We, so, you
0: started out with a support group?
1: We started out with a support group. That's huge. Oh, man, it is so important. These were people that we had been in conflict with and mm-hmm. worked through it. <laughs> Instead of
0: working it through in a much more difficult scenario. Yes, in a, a
1: cross cultural situation where the intensity level is, you know, triple what it is back home in your home culture. Yeah. So, we, that was just an incredible blessing to go. And honestly, the other thing. I would say is I think going when we are a little bit older mm-hmm. was kind of helpful. And that, that's not to say that I don't think young people should go to the mission field. Yeah. I, I think one thing that we didn't have to do is we didn't have to do language learning because uh, in the United Arab Emirates, English is widely spoken. It's the language of instruction on all the universities. Yeah, And so even though we thought we might need to learn Arabic and were prepared to in the end, it, it wasn't necessary. And it would have been really kind of a waste of our time mm-hmm. because we were working, eventually we were working with students from all different countries. So you're working with international students
0: in the UAE. That's
1: right. Pakistanis, Indians, Filipinos, Nigerians, Ugandans, mm-hmm. Kenyans. Yeah. What pick your language that you'd learn. <laughs> um, so yeah. English was what we stuck with. And, but I think, so, so I think having a ministry experience, kind of having a team that we were committed to had a a, a, a similar philosophy of ministry that we were committed to. Yeah. We loved one another. We'd worked through conflict. I think all of that was just a tremendous benefit. Yeah. So you started out doing campus ministry there. Is that what you're still doing? We started out doing campus ministry and I'm not doing that anymore although I still have my fingers in it to some degree. <laughs> you can't quit. Yeah, it's hard to quit, but we we went over and yeah, started from scratch. Tried to get on campuses. They're all gated and guarded, yeah. And we would we formed a company mm-hmm. because we didn't want to be on pastor's visas. Yeah. We did get onto the campuses, and we began to meet students. And really, all the way we did it was basically, I just need to know one student on this campus that will meet with me and somebody to sit down with in the cafeteria. Somebody to get you a guest pass. Somebody to get me a guest pass. That's right, get me through the gate. And then I would open up the Bible and say, hey, let's read the Bible together. That was oftentimes uh, foreign Idea to them, even if they considered themselves a Christian, mm-hmm. the idea of reading the Bible kind of in public was strange. Yeah, but they would go along with me, and we would begin reading the Bible. And over time, oftentimes those students would realize that they weren't Christians mm-hmm. as we read through the Gospels, and then oftentimes they became Christians. Yeah, really, just reading the Bible, and that's kind of in our campus ministry. That's really kind of the secret sauce. Mm-hmm is reading the Bible with someone else.
0: Fascinating idea.
1: Yes, I know, <laughs> radical.
0: Who would have thought that the Word of God was living and active? <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, I think we believe it, but we don't always practice it.
1: Yeah, we, I, I think it's the best. And now, you know, I, that's what I kind of advocate and tell my church members. Okay, you may be able to talk about your faith with your colleague from work or your neighbor. Mm-hmm. That's great. How far are you going to get with that in convincing them about the claims of Christ without taking them to Christ Himself mm-hmm. and letting Him speak for Himself? Yeah. Invite your friend to read the Bible with you, and s- let them make up their own mind. Moving them from a secondhand experience of Christ towards a firsthand experience. Yeah,
0: that's of right.
2: That's, that's. I like that. I like the way you've uh, describe that transition and the importance of. I, I do think that's easily forgotten. Um,
0: so you, you, you got onto campuses, uh, things like that. Do you work with uh, churches as well over there?
1: Well, we, we were committed to the local church. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as we arrived, we, we became members of kind of the main English-speaking international church. One thing that we re- recognized, though, early on was that the church was really weak. Mm-hmm. And I think this is true in a lot of international churches for expatriates. The church kind of gets watered down to kind of least common denominator theology. You have so many different people from so many different backgrounds. That's
0: theologically, it's like, we're the church that speaks English. <laughs> you right, know like right. that's
1: the common bond. Right. Right. And so the the bar kind of gets lowered mm-hmm. and 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 unfortunately, it, Oftentimes, those churches become all theological. Uh, I get you. And so that was—it was weak. It was weak. The preaching was weak. Um, they were sweet people. Yeah. But we realized about a year in, you know, we're not going to be able—where do we take our students? You know, they're not going to grow in this setting in the local church. We want our parachurch ministry to support the local church. Yeah but it's going to have to be stronger than this. And so yeah. we began to put some energy into church reform.
0: Yeah.
1: And eventually a new pastor was brought in. Some of us had gotten into leadership positions in the mm-hmm. church, and a new pastor was brought in, someone who was, uh, had solid theological commitments yeah. um, and was a very good Bible expositor. Mm-hmm. And when a church goes from having weak preaching to strong, expositional, walk-through-the-Bible preaching, man, it just breathes so much life into the church. And other- Did you have people leave? We they
2: didn't, yes. they didn't have anywhere to go? Yes,
0: yes. Because um, <laughs> I think if you're used to awe a, a theology, the reaction is either to be really enjoy it or to get really upset about it. <laughs>
1: yes, I would say that there were people who left um, mm-hmm. over time and other churches were formed in the city uh, who you. were more to their liking, which were more you. to their liking. But that church, I think, got stronger and stronger. Um, meanwhile, the student ministry is growing, mm-hmm. and we're bringing students in. And during that time, we also were learning, I think, as a team, a lot more, uh, a lot more about the centrality and the primacy of the local church. Mm-hmm. Even more than we had kind of taken for granted before. And so we actually began to then teach in the student ministry about the church. Mm. We want to teach about the church, not just kind of assume the church.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, Uh, especially with their, if most of them are from the context you're talking about, they probably have no point of reference for what a church is or what it
1: does. Well, that's right. And, And so rather than kind of just, you know, after the meeting, oh, by the way, you should go to church. It Mm -hmm. was, you know, no, this will be a topic because the church is talked about in the scripture. Yeah. You know, Ephesians, the church is talked about and all the other books it's talked about. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, God's way to display his glory on earth is in the church. So we began to teach on that. And we, you know, for example, we, one of our weekend conferences would be focused on the church every two or three years. That's Mm. the topic of the conference And I think initially some people thought we were a little bit crazy to do that. Like, oh, you know, how are these students going to become Christians if the topic is the church? But we always share the gospel as we talk about the church Mm -hmm. and reference it in the scripture. And students would become Christians at at that conference, even when we, even when the topic was the church.
2: Yeah. So,
1: um... You probably got to go and Well, we, a, can, a we can keep going a little bit, because I'd love to tell you a little bit more about church planning, because that's what yeah. I've transitioned into.
0: Yeah. So uh, what, what's going on with that now?
1: Well, basically, the student ministry grew. We built up a staff team of students who had come to Christ, were trained in student mm-hmm. ministry, and then we asked them and helped them have join us on the staff team as full-time student workers. Yeah. Then we had a team. Really, it was time for us, the three American men who had started the ministry to step out of it. Mm -hmm. So we all, we staggered our departure from the ministry. Yeah. Two of them are uh, now pastoring a church uh, in Iraq. Mm. And I set out to plant a new church in Dubai. So I had, uh, had initially we had been in that uh, mother church, Mm -hmm. the, the main evangelical church that we saw reformed. Yeah. After eight years there, we were sent out. I was sent out with another two men to be a founding elder of another church called Redeemer Church of Dubai on the mm-hmm. other side of the city. We started with 100 people, and now there's 1,000 people gathering oh, every wow. week. And I served as an elder there for six years while I was doing the student ministry. Is this um,
0: primarily people who are foreigners to the UAE?
1: Yes. Okay. Yes almost exclusively expats. The, uh, the demographics of the United Arab Emirates are that only 10% of the population are the local people, the citizens, yeah. 90% are from other countries.
0: And they import a lot of their workforce and all that type of stuff. Are those the people there? They're
1: mainly students
0: or. Yeah. The you know, people there many?
1: are do anything. <laughs> I mean, you, you've got, they're doing everything. They okay. span the gamut. Um, in, in your church. Uh, in our church, that's yeah. right. So okay. we've got everything from right now, I, we have security guards mm-hmm. who don't make very much money at all, or mm-hmm. housemaids, uh, all the way up to Emirates Airlines executives. Oh well, wow. that's quite the span, and every <laughs> and everything in between. So, yeah. yeah so i I approached the um, I approached the elders at Redeemer Church of Dubai and and ask them to pray with me and consider sending me out to start another Reformed evangelical church in the city. What do you think the key principles
2: for church planting are?
1: Well, I think you need to get the gospel right, Mm -hmm. and I think you need to not assume the gospel in the preaching and in the teaching of the church. Because an assumed gospel is oftentimes a forgotten gospel somewhere mm-hmm. down the line, and eventually that church is going to go off the rails, um, and you're going to have people not who aren't Christians ultimately who are members of the church. Yeah. So I think making sure you're committed to a biblical gospel, and that the gospel would be preached week in and week out, obviously not in a pedantic way. Mm-hmm. but how is this passage in the scripture connected to the gospel, the, the mm-hmm. grand message of always the always bringing it back, always bringing it back at some point in, in your sermon, making sure that people, them, the, this, the members of the church know how to share the gospel. Mm. What does that look like? How do you equip them for that? Well, one way is the preaching so that I, yeah. I talk about the gospel. I, I, not, a, not every preacher is like this, but I, I would say you need to explain the gospel every week. And I, I try to come at it from different angles, um, perhaps using some different verbiage mm-hmm. uh, every week. But I want to explain how God, a holy God, has solved the problem of sin and death and Satan in the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means. To repent of your sin and trust in him. So, I want to explain that every week somehow Mm -hmm. in the sermon. I want someone to be able to become a Christian every week if they hear the sermon. Now, there's other things I want to teach from the passages that I might be preaching from as well. So, I think that's
2: important. I think that
1: having clear Convictions and commitments about your philosophy of ministry, which is different than, say, your statement of faith, Mm -hmm. but a philosophy of ministry. How is your church going to operate? What's going to be important? Um, Are there going to, to what degree, are
2: programs going to be a part of the church?
1: Um, Or, you know, uh, there's a book that's uh, that's out there called "The Trellis and the Vine." Mm Uh, by Tony Payne, I believe, and another co-author comes out of... uh, It's written by Australians. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how the life of really what you want is people growing in the Lord in your church. And that's going to come from their relationships with one another. And the idea that you want the structures of your church to support that growth and Mm -hmm. not overwhelm the growth... So I think getting the right, and so he likens it to the trellis for a vine. So yeah. how much trellis do you need to prop up the growth of the vine? Mm-hmm. Um, and only building enough trellis to spur on and support the growth of the vine.
2: So you the, don't want
1: programs to be an end in and of themselves. That's right. You there don't want means to an end. That's right. You want to always make sure that your programs are a means to an end. Um, so things like that, deciding about those kinds of ideas before you get started, I think is really important. Mm. Um, and we like to, you know, as evangelicals, we like to go to we like to go to where the gospel's not. Mm-hmm. So trying to spread out. Yeah. Now, since that since we started the church two and a half years ago. Uh, since then, new government regulations have come into play, and we ha- as a church have been forced back into the building mm. where that grandmother church is meeting. Oh, wow. So we meet in the room next to them, which is not ideal. Yeah. We'd like to be back out in the city and are praying and working towards that. But that's the situation the Lord has, has us in right now. So we're, we're trusting him continuing to preach the gospel and uh, love one another. I don't
0: think that government move will prevent the gospel from going forth. (laughs) Well, I think that's right.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm preaching in 2 Timothy right now, and Paul says, I'm in chains, but the gospel's not bound. Unchained gospel, yeah. Well, before you go, um,
0: would you mind sharing with us a a period in ministry that was uh, either difficult or challenging for you, You know, as much as you're willing to, uh, and how the Lord got you through that, or something He gave to you
2: to help in that situation. I think that what I've seen in my own life and the
1: life of other staff, parachurch staff, as well as church staff, is that oftentimes, especially when you're young, uh, you get started in ministry. And somehow unholy, ungodly motivations are mixed in Mm. with the right motivations. I mean, in some ways, as sinners, that's always going to be the case for us. The best we can do is mixed motives. Yeah. (laughs) Or at least some motives that we don't know are there, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I think ministry over time will reveal those poor motives Hmm. Oftentimes through hardship, and for me, I think it was my ambitions, uh, my ungodly ambition in ministry. Yes, I wanted to glorify the Lord. Yes, I wanted to please Him. But I also, I think, deep down in my heart, I wanted, uh, I wanted to be seen as important. I wanted, you know, some of that. Some of my mixed motives was it was ministry for me. Yeah and so when i have I, an impressive ministry yeah and i and good. i also saw myself as i think indispensable at times mm-hmm. in the ministry and so what would happen for me and this is my my own pattern other people have patterns in ministry is i would go at ministry just you know 110% i'm i'm running hard mm-hmm. i'm running fast and then i would just kind of crash and burn Yeah, Uh, and when I say crash and burn, I mean just kind of depression, exhaustion, um, not loving my wife and my family well, or the ministry, or or and not doing the ministry well. Yeah, yeah, at that point too, and that seemed to be a cycle and a pattern for me Mm. in ministry, and and I would get to those points and think I'm exhausted. I can't. I don't want to do ministry anymore. What am I doing here? What am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, you know. Okay, maybe. Oh, I just need a good night's sleep. Well, a good night's sleep wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. It was deeper than that, and I think the Lord was revealing your motivations are wrong. You're not indispensable.
2: Mm. Um, it's not your strength that it's going to accomplish.
1: this. That's right. That's right. And so, through those times of weakness the Lord was revealing that I needed to depend on him, a lot of the ambitions kind of got stripped away. When I, when I, when I graduated from university and I stepped into ministry three years later, after the engineering years, I had a sheet of paper in my file that had ministry goals for me. Mm. And the silly thing was, is that some of these goals were things I couldn't, actually bring about you know but it's like (laughs) i want to do this i want to do this i want to do this and so yes about any worthy ministry objective you want somebody
0: converted you want somebody to change their heart it's like i have i don't even have control over my own heart like how can i
1: How can I? like
0: (laughs) how do i think i can accomplish that without god's power god's spirit moving yet like you i fall into that you know over and over again i think if it's it's a good enough sermon or if i do this you know it's it's I think that's all. Well, always a temptation in ministry. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I think I think fortunately I had people around me in ministry, those ministry partners Mm -hmm. who helped me through that time and Mm. would speak wisdom to me. And I began. I think you know, still a work in progress, as we all are. To lay aside repent of those ambitions and just desire to be faithful i just want to be faithful i don't need to be important in other people's eyes i want to do what the lord wants me to do and if that's never known by anyone else that's fine yeah so avoiding those you know fighting that sin that kind of sin in life and depending on the Lord in prayer. I mean, still, of course, I'd love to grow more and more in prayer, but knowing that I can't, like you said, I can't change people's hearts. God's got to come and remove the veil. Um,
2: So those were hard times on and off. Yeah. So uh, it kind of sounded like as you were going through
0: that, you know, the community, the team gathered around you, uh, was it, was it kind of one day fixed or was it just kind of a slow heel? Oh no, it wasn't a one day fix. Well, I mean I mean like you can be recovering, recovering, and then
1: the, the tur- was turning the corner quick or slow, kind of. I think turning the corner was slow. Mm-hmm. Uh because I would I would kind of recover from those burned out times mm-hmm. and then inevitably I would the the start en- relying on yes. your own. Yeah, yeah. The again, engine yeah. would start running hot again. <laughs> um because of that drive. And and then I would overheat and have to, you know, <laughs> to use the car analogy, I'd have to pull over to the side of the road because the radiator was spewing mm-hmm. steam everywhere yeah. and kind of go through it again. I think now after almost 30 years in ministry, now I think I run pretty hard, but certainly am better able to run at a sustainable pace. Mm-hmm. If anybody's um, going through the burnout
2: now, uh, uh, what would be a word that you would give them or tell them?
1: Well, I think in addition to to the external things like healthy patterns of your own time with the Lord, uh, of healthy patterns of rest, healthy patterns of reflection, I would say that you need to look at your motivations and ask the Lord to show you if there are any ungodly motivations in your ministry and wait on him. And maybe that'll take time, but I think he's gracious. He's eager to guide us. Um, He's a loving father. And when he brings conviction, it's a mercy and a grace Mm -hmm. of him to do that for us. It's unpleasant. But He loves us too much to leave us as we are. Yeah, that's right. It's the surgery that we need on our heart. Um, So so that's what I would say. Take care of the external things, but also look to the internal things, the motivations, the drive in ministry. Because I suspect, in most people's case, there's something out of whack there. Yeah, it could be a combination of
0: all of them. Yeah. well thanks so much for sharing with us Brian I took you a little longer than I think you wanted to go uh, but appreciate you so much and uh, we'll be uh, praying that the Lord blesses you your family and your ministry mm. overseas as he is working uh, all across the globe thanks so much Thanks, Seth. if this podcast has been encouraging to you we'd love to hear from you drop us a line at surviving ministry podcast at gmail.com until next time Congratulations, you survived this podcast.